Den Talks, an intimate conversation with others to give you inspiration on your own journey. This is Tal, and today I had the pleasure of chatting with John Paul Creamy, sober coach, Den breathwork guide, and former actor fitness model. After suffering from a near-death experience at the age of 19, not to give it away, but he was stabbed. He was also diagnosed with alopecia at just 23. Look, he is self-admittedly vain, so that was a horrible diagnosis for him. He was in a dark place, and unfortunately for him, he did turn towards substances to cope. I think a lot of people can relate to that. We do talk about how his transformation from substance abuse to faith, to fitness, to breath work, all of it. It really is an amazing journey. He also toured with rock bands and he coaches celebrities. He is obsessed with breath work. He will tell you why it is good for you, what it is, and why you should incorporate into your daily life. He also talks about how you can learn to like yourself, a process that was difficult for him, and how to define your success through helping others. He's raw, he's crass, he curses, Yet he is a healer, and he hates that term. But make sure you stay tuned for his personal practice at the end of the podcast, where he's going to share an exercise in conscious breathing for relaxation. Hey, we're here with John Paul Creamy, sober coach and breath work. We were trying to figure out what the word was, teacher, guide, facilitator, um, which actually leads me into my first question. He's so much fun to talk to. You guys are going to love this. He has so much energy and so many amazing stories. But let's start with the fact that when I was asking how to introduce you, it was actually hard for you to answer. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know what the right title is. I there's a lot of people out there that call themselves breathwork healers, and I'm not I'm definitely not a healer. You know, I think people heal themselves. I I like to sort of guide people in that direction, but I don't know anyone that's putting their hand on my fucking head and healing <laughs> me. You know what I mean? So, so you think of healing more the old school, like you can't walk, you get touched, and oh my God, now I can walk again. Yeah, I mean, it, and I know that's not what people intend when they say that. And, and I have friends that call themselves that, so I shouldn't say that. But, you know, we're going to get real. We're going to get honest here. And yes. like, I think, you know, it's, your, it's like my job to sort of push people in the right direction and their job to heal themselves. I, I can't heal anyone. I can't, you know, I can't change anyone. People have to bring the change for themselves. So I'm going to push you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to teach you what I, what I did for myself. But if you want healing, you're going to have to bring the healing. You're going to have to do the work. You're going to have to show up for yourself. So nobody's, nobody's healing anybody anymore. I, you know, look, if somebody could heal you, if they could like literally heal you, they would have a line down the street, oh, for right? Sure. So I don't see that. Do you see any lines on the street going to the healer? We'd all be lined up for it. That's right. It's true. And it is, you're right. You have to be able to be willing and open. But it's interesting that you say that because going back through your history, mm-hmm. kind of how this all started and the fact that you're a sober coach, you should talk about getting sober yourself and kind of where all that started because I'm sure that was your first lesson in learning that you have to heal yourself. Sure. Um, yeah. I've been sober 17 years now. March 5th, 2000 is my sobriety date. 2000 is a good year to be. It's yeah. easy to keep track. Well, it was kind of like I bottomed out. New Year's Eve. And then I just kind of kept bouncing on the bottom for a couple more months with, you know, the millennium 2000 in New Orleans. It was insane. So what was your bottom? Oh, I mean, you know, I think I had a lot of bottoms as a lot, as most people do. And they have, you know, they have a horrible incident or something that happens. And then there's a window of like, I need, I, I'm a mess. I need to do something about my life. And then if you don't jump through that window, 
that window of opportunity and actually do something about it, then you kind of start to tell yourself like, oh, maybe I overreacted. Maybe it's fine. How long do you think that window is? Like, how long do you think it's open for? I think it's open for a couple of days. Oh, that's a, that's a small window. I think so. Um, and then people don't immediately like go back out and start drinking or whatever. They slowly ease back into it. I'm never going to drink again. And then it takes a couple of weeks and then but they, you know, they don't take the action. What I mean by the window is if you don't take action, some real action, ask for help or do something about it, you've missed the window. So my last, you know, bottom was I had, um, I had, a, I had found out about another friend of mine dying in Boston and I, and you know, I lost a lot of friends growing up and it was really hard news. It was someone I grew up with, someone I was very close to. And I, and I left work early and I proceeded to go and get wrecked for the entire weekend. And by the end of the weekend, I was coming back from a strip bar where I had lost my leather jacket with all my money in it. I think oh. I think I took off the jacket getting a lap dance and then my <laughs> stripper stole it or something like that. And I was jumping the canal bridges with my car in Venice, like Dukes of Hazard style. Oh, my God. And the police were behind me. Yeah, the police were behind me. And he pulled me over like right in front of my house. And he said, you know, we thought it was a stolen car because you were just going through red lights. And I was out of my mind. And I basically just told him the whole story and broke down right there and told him to the police, to the police. And I said, my house is literally right there. We're standing in front of it. And he let me go. And um, the next morning I woke up and the window was broken. I had to break my way in and the home phone was missing and there was an empty packet of Coke on the table. And I was a mess. I was a hot mess. And my stripper roommate at the time was like, you're, you're a mess. And I was just like, <laughs> I love that coming from the stripper. Yeah. And she's like, you're a mess. You're a total mess. And I was just like crying, like, you're right. I am a mess. You know, and I was like, what do I do? You know, stripper roommate, like, tell me what to do with my life. <laughs> and she was like, you need to like, go to AA, go, you know, go to 12 step or whatever. And, um, and my therapist had suggested 12 step or recovery months before, but somehow it had more power of coming from the stripper roommate at the time <laughs> she carried more weight. So, um, well, more so, real for you probably. Yeah. I mean, look, it was just the right moment. And, um, and I had tried to get sober on my own before that. I was literally, what does that mean? Just going cold turkey? Yeah. Like trying, I'd get like a month without drinking. And in that month, it was like a spring that was inside of me that would just get tighter and tighter. And I would get more and more uncomfortable and I would find a reason to drink or there'd be no reason to drink I would still go out with my friends who drank and try and hang out with them and not drink which is crazy so hard. it's impossible you know and so eventually someone would stick a drink in my hand and I would drink it you know and so I had no as they say no mental defense against the first drink and so you know if you hang around barbershops you're going to get a haircut right <laughs> so so yeah that's what happened so not you per se I, no not me. <laughs> I'm hairless so I mean that's part of the bottom you know I was um at the time, I was an aspiring actor. I put myself through method acting school and a fitness model. And um, I was all about my looks. I was all about the outsides. And I got this thing called alopecia areata, which is sudden hair loss and patches. I had all these bald patches on my head and my eyebrows. And I was like penciling them in and penciling in the patches. And I'd go to auditions and the casting. And you girl. never thought about just shaving it? Not at the time. No, I was 23, 24 years old. And um, it was brutal. I mean, I and I was um, getting these cortisone shots in my eyebrows, Oof. like literally like 50 in each eyebrow and in my head and taking prednisone, which is a catabolic steroid. So it makes you bloated and fat. It's the opposite of what bodybuilders take. Right. 
And so, and I was a trainer at Gold's Gym. So I'm like this fat bloated <laughs> trainer, like trying, trying to be an actor, you know, and I go to auditions and the casting director's like, something's off about you, like looking at me. It was horrible. And all that you were doing all of this because you were just fighting, you were fighting your looks. Like you were terrified to lose yes. what you thought was everything. Yes. My whole self-worth. It's, it's embarrassing to say, but it's my truth. My self-worth. Look, we live in LA. There's a lot of that going around. So it's an honest conversation. Totally. My self-esteem, my self-worth was all wrapped up in my looks, all of my outsides. And so if that's your, if that's your base, if that's what you believe about yourself, if, you, if your job is your self-esteem and your self-worth, if your relationship, whatever, and that gets stripped away, you, it, it forces you to a place of like, you're, I was like, I was either going to stick a gun in my mouth and kill myself, or I was going to have to change something. And I was taking all these uh, Vicodin because I couldn't hit the shots were so painful. And then I just started eating them every day, all day to deal with the emotional pain. Cause I had no tools to deal with this thing that was happening to me. So, um, basically the Vicodin and the booze bottomed me out and then I got sober and in sobriety, I decided to get off the prednisone, to get off the cortisone shots, and all my hair just went, like, just literally in, like, a two-month span. Like, so in early sobriety, I lost all my hair, my eyebrows, everything. And I changed from the inside and the outside, like a different person. But in a weird way, that's almost, that's a blessing, because it actually forced you to have to look at yourself differently. Yes. I tell people it's the greatest gift I ever gotten. You know, it really is. It's like... It's not really so much what happens to you as it is the meaning that we assign it, right? Like this, I, I, I could look at it as the worst thing that's ever happened to me, the best thing. And I look at it as the best thing because it changed the course of my life. I got sober at 26, 27 years old, which I would, would have never got sober at. You know, I know people now, the few friends that I have left from where I grew up, you know, most of them are gone. They, you know, died either through drug and alcohol or suicide or something like that. Um, you know, now they're trying to get sober, some of them. And it's like, I can't imagine being in my 40s trying to get sober. It's brutal. But let's talk about that. So you're from Boston. Mm -hmm. um, and talk. it sounds like it was pretty rough. I mean, if... I'm not from the roughest area. I'm from an area, though, that's called the Irish Riviera. <laughs> so it's the 13 most Irish towns in America. It's just 25, like 20, 25 minutes south of Boston. Mine's the, my town that I grew up in is the fifth most Irish town in America. And so I just thought everyone had like 17 brothers and sisters and was redheaded and Irish and just beat the shit out of each other, right? <laughs> so I just grew up like that. And um, and it was, you know, it, it was like a lot of city people from Southie and what have you moved to the suburbs. So it was like city mentality in like nice home suburbs. It was really weird. Right. You know, I got stabbed at 19 years old and almost died. I lost half the blood in my body. I got stabbed in the head and it was crazy. And uh, the doctor, I remember him stitching it at the time. And, you know, he said, don't worry, kid, your hair will cover it. And little did he know <laughs> that I was going to come down with alopecia oh, and lose all my hair. But um, now, was that know, like a normal thing or were you running with a bad crowd? I think I don't think my crowd was that bad, but I would get myself into bad situations. And my I, this one wasn't, you know, my friend was trying to break up a fight and he got stabbed in the stomach. And then the guy was running by and I grabbed him and said, what's going on? And he stabbed me in the head. Oof. Yeah, it was brutal. And, uh, then you know, that's the thing. Like, nothing, none of that stopped me from drinking or using. The next night I was out with my whole head bandaged up. And people were like, I was at a party. And people were like, didn't you get stabbed last night? And I was like, yeah. So what's going on with you? You know what I mean? Like, it was crazy. Like, I just kept going through it. People would die and suicides and all this stuff. And I just kept How going. old were you when you started drinking? And I don't even mean socially. Just like when you felt like it started to become a but, problem. Well, I think, you know, it was never a problem. It was always my solution. Fair enough. The problem is inside of me and how I feel about myself. And so the first time I drank, 
is a clear indicator. Like I felt amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, I drank and I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is how I want to feel all the time. You know, all my fear, all my nervousness and worry just left me. How old was that? I'd say 12, 13 years old. So what was it like? What, what for you was that? Like, where was it coming from? Um, we took it from a parent's liquor cabinet. You know, I had a friend who had a single mom and his mother um, was gone somewhere. And we, you know, we took the booze from the liquor Usually cabinet. That's how it happens. Yeah, exactly. But where was it? Like, why were you emotionally in that place? Like, what was going on for you that you were a kid that was so anxious and wrapped mm. up and that literally drinking at that age made you feel like indestructible? Right. I don't know. You know, I've always just wanted to grow up really fast and just in, and always when I was young, not now, I, I didn't feel comfortable in my skin. I always felt like I wasn't safe. And and because I felt like I wasn't safe, these things kept happening. I know this now. These things kept happening to affirm to me that I'm not safe in the world, like getting stabbed, like getting jumped, like getting like all these horrible things kept happening to me. So there's this there's this belief that I'm not safe in the world and that. Um, and, I, and then I have to keep making that true. I have to keep making that right. Um, and so when I drank, I felt safe. I felt indestructible. I felt like nobody could hurt me. And people would start fights with me. People started fights with me all the time, but people would start fights with me when I was drinking and I would just unload on them. And so it's hilarious now. I'm, you know, I'm a meditation teacher. <laughs> You're like a pacifist. <laughs> I've, I've been in like, you know, over a hundred fights, you know, probably in my life. But I think that's probably why you can really help people because you can relate to them as they truly are with like zero judgment and knowing that, I mean, shit happens. Sure. I mean, look, I'm still, there's st most of that guy is gone today, but there's still pieces of me that are inside that like, that's not okay. Or there's like, I, I joke in my classes all the time that my default setting is like selfish asshole. I wake up, I'm a selfish asshole, and I have to battle against that every day. <laughs> I have to fight it every day. And when I do all these things where I, you know, I do the breath work and I help people, I become the best version of me, right? The the best version of me. So, you know, it's like it's a constant thing. I don't know why I go back to selfish asshole, but like helping other people gets me out of that. Now, my wife isn't like that, and a lot of the people I'm friends with aren't like that. I don't know why that's my setting. Um, but I have to work against it. And so it's always about helping other people for me now. So when you, I mean, you describe yourself as selfish asshole, do you, do you feel like that's what it was growing up that you were just a selfish asshole or? Wow. I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a tough question. I don't, I don't know where it starts. Is it hereditary? Is it, is it, you know, bred into me? I felt, I think I felt alone a lot as a child. I have brothers and sisters. I have a brother and two sisters, but there's a big age gap. And so I remember being alone all the time. And, um, and I think it's always sort of like looking for that attention. Yeah. And so, you know, you, I think you and I have talked about this before. Like my first love is books in the library. That, that's my first escape before alcohol, right? I, you give me a book, I can disappear for days. And I would disappear as a kid in the library. So I think I was always looking for an escape. And maybe that is that escape is the escape from myself. You know, I don't I don't like how I feel with me. I'm not comfortable with myself. And so how do I get out of this feeling? How do I escape this feeling? And so it's always about seeking things outside of myself to to feel differently. Right. And so that's where drugs come in. That's where alcohol comes in. That's where food comes in or sex or it goes on and on, even exercise. Right. And when you start to do this thing, this breathwork thing, which we'll get to, I'm sure, it changes that and it works you from the inside out. 
you know, I say it all the time that happiness is an inside job mm -hmm. and that I'm never going to fix myself. I've learned this the hard way. I'm never going to fix myself from the outside in. It's always got to be from the inside out. But it's so interesting that your journey was trying from the outside. Most people. Is. Yeah, that's like, true. I, you know, look, you know, I've worked with tons of celebrities at this point, right? I've worked with people, some of the biggest, most successful celebrities on this planet. And they thought that when they got the thing, the award, the, the multi-platinum album, the, the, the big show, the big movie, the Oscar, you know, whatever. Everything would be perfect. Everything would be okay. And then it didn't. And that's the biggest letdown, right? It's the same thing with Olympic athletes. And yeah, after they get the medal, you know, what now? And so when you think that this thing is going to fix you, you're screwed. You know, you're, you're going to be doomed. And so um, I, I'm always working with those kind of people. They think like, this thing didn't fix me. Now what? And so um, it's about finding that happiness, that inside center and, and getting there and knowing that, that, that nothing from the outside in is going to fix me. So let's go back a little bit. So sure. did you ever get that policeman's name, by the way? Because I feel like he did you such a huge I solid. Know. I actually Because imagine if it went the other way, you could have been doing some serious time. Yeah. Yeah. I actually had a couple... Um, DUIs before I was 21 in Boston. And, um, and you know, one of them I got off and the other one I didn't. And um, he did. He did me a huge favor. And I actually looked, I looked for his card or wanted to reach out to him or something like that and say, thank you. You know, here we are 17 years later. I'm still sober. Yeah. From and, that moment. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. That's the window. You know, your whole life, people think it's like you have to work up to this big change and then it takes all this time. It's like, no, it's, a, it's in a moment. It's a decision. You know, it's it's one moment and you it's something that happens. And then from that thing that happens, you make a decision and then you stick with it and you change the course of the life. I mean, that's how this whole breathwork thing started, too. And it's so fascinating that you made that decision. And you said you've lost friends before, but there was something about this moment with your stripper roommate telling you to go to 12 <laughs> steps that actually made you do it. Yes. Are I'm, you still friends with her? I hope I I'm friends with her on Facebook. Okay, good. But I mean, it's, it's a big moment. She was part of a really big change for you. She was, yeah. Um, so tell me then, what was it about either 12-step program or about your healing then that started to really change you or affect you? So once I um, once I went into that, into recovery, I, I just dove into like self-help. You know, I started doing all of it. You know, I, whenever I do, I do it. Like you I get addicted. I, yeah, I overdo <laughs> it. I overdo everything. So I started doing like The Power of Now and The Seed of the Soul and all these different books. And, um, you know, it, it, it was just, I just dove in. I dove into everything. You know, I didn't believe any of that stuff was going to work for me. Um, but I did it anyways. And that's, you know, that's what faith is, right? Yep. You know, I don't think this thing is going to work, but I don't know how to stay sober on my own. I don't know how to run my life on my own. It takes a tremendous amount of conflict, you know, especially for a man to be like, I don't know how to run my life. And I'm going to take direction from some stranger that I don't even know who's going to tell me how to run my life and tell me what to do. And I'm just going to do it. And even though I don't believe a lot of it, I'm going to do it anyways. So wh whether that conflict is internal, you hate yourself and you hate the way you feel or external, like you've lost your business, you've lost your wife, you've lost everything. doesn't matter. It, what matters is the actions that you take. And if you can step up and do something about it. And yeah, and stepping up to the unknown is difficult for most people. It is. Yeah. And that's where everything is. That's where everything you want is. It's on the other side of the unknown. It's on the other side of your comfort zone. Everything you want in life is going to be hard and yeah. you're going to have to step through the unknown and discomfort. And so, you know, 
it, that's the challenge that, you know, I get people with people all the time. I'm like, what do you want? And like, you have to walk through your fear because your brain doesn't want you to do anything. Your brain wants you to stay home on the couch and eat ice cream and not watch Netflix. At least my brain does. Yeah. It doesn't want me to do anything. Those are some good nights too. <laughs> yes. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But everything else I want is on the other side of that. Yeah. It's, it's not doing that, you know? You know, everybody wants to be successful. So, I mean, it really is like it's walking the fire. Yeah. It's like the metaphorical walk the fire. Absolutely. Look, everybody wants to be successful, whether that's successful in a happy relationship or successful in your business or your career, whatever you want. But they're not, you know, are you willing to do the work? Because to be successful in a in a relationship, you have to have some uncomfortable conversations, mm -hmm. right? If you want anything, if you want a great relationship, you're going to have to have difficult conversations. If you want great sex, you're going to have to have an uncomfortable, uncomfortable conversation, conversation, right? And so, how bad do you want it? If you want, you know, if you want a successful business, you're going to have to work hard. You know, there's this uh, speaker that I like. Um, Eric Thomas is his name. And he says, everybody wants to be a beast until it's time to do what beasts do. And beasts get up at 4 a.m. It's so true. I, I have this conversation with people all the time. I'm like, things don't magically happen. I yeah. mean, and I know a lot of what we all do in this world is, you know, manifestation and intention. That's only like a small part of it. You have to then do the work, do the work to take your faith to move it forward. It doesn't, 100%. it doesn't hand it to you, but it's interesting. So you feel like what you were learning is it's like the tools of switching the fear a little bit, the tools of learning how to step forward into the unknown versus someone just handing you sobriety, basically. That and showing up. Showing up is the hardest part. You know, like, I don't want to go do this thing. I show up anyways. I don't want to go to the gym. I show up anyways. I don't want to go meditate. I don't want to go do breath work. I show up anyways. My head doesn't want me to show That's up. That's hard. Yeah, but... You know, it's about having smart feet, as they say. Right? Forget about what your <laughs> I love that. Forget about what your head says. Just get your feet out the door. You know, if I listen to my head, there's this woman. God, I wish I could remember her name. She says, "You got to do the countdown in the morning: five, four, three, two, one, and jump out of bed when the alarm goes off." You know, because if you sit there and you wait and you hesitate, if you hesitate more than five seconds, you don't do it. So you got to And it's so true. The longer you wait, even if you eventually get out, you've already changed the tone of how you're starting your day. Right. You're already like, ugh, it's right. so much. Yeah, that's so interesting. And if you jump out of bed and you attack the day, your whole day goes differently. You just my day is different. Yeah, my day is different when I get up and I show up for myself. My day is different when I get up and I do breath work than the days that I don't. I'm a better everything. I'm a better father. I'm a better husband. I'm a better, you know, teacher, worker, friend. Everything is better. And do you do breath work daily for you? I did for the first year. The first year that I found it, I, I did it every single day. And now I do it a couple times a week. But I also have a um, float tank, which we'll probably dive into. Amazing. Yeah. And so I meditate in the float tank. You too. own a float tank? I own a float tank. Yeah. Incredible. We are definitely going to get there. Okay. But just staying on the path. So you... You you got sober. Mm -hmm. um, how did you lead? I mean, so at this point, I mean, we kind of touched on it. You were a trainer, yes. obviously an inspiring actor, but you were making money by being a a, a trainer, correct? Yes, and a you personal were, trainer. Right, and you were doing like really well in that. That was yeah. actually a successful career for you. I had a personal training business in Gold's Gym in Venice, uh, Venice, California, the mecca of bodybuilding. I mean, yeah. I call it the mecca of narcissism, <laughs> but it's called the mecca of bodybuilding. Probably a little bit of both. Yeah, so um, so I had this personal training business in there. I think I was the smallest trainer in the gym, which is, you know, everyone's massive in there. And, um, and I had some great clients, some celebrity clients. And when I got sober, my business actually took off. In fact, the funny thing is, is I had, I was working for the gym and I had a uh, personal training business on the side and 
I was like a week and a half sober and I was fighting with everyone I worked with. And I went, you know what? I'm going to surrender today. Like whatever the God's will or the universe's will is, I'm going to just go along with it. I'm tired of fighting with everyone and everything. And I came into work and they fired me. And I was like, what do you mean? You can't fire me. Like, I'm the best sales guy here. I'm the sales manager. Like, nobody wants to work with you. You're too angry. (laughs) (laughs) I had headbutted a coworker. Oh, God. Yeah. And I I mean, he had it coming. But I I love this. And they have it on video, which was terrible. Like, they played the video back. Oh, God, you know you could find that. It's going to be somewhere in someone's Facebook feed soon. Oh, my God. So, (laughs) um, yeah, so they fired me, but they let me stay and train my clients, which was amazing. And I went in, you know, it just... um, it was a gift. You know, everything was a gift. Like that getting fired was a gift because I didn't know, uh, I was miserable there. And then I, my, my personal training business just took off. And then I would, you know, hear people sharing about traveling all around the world. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do that. Like I'm a personal trainer now. How am I going to travel? And then one of my clients, this big movie producer, um, he's an amazing guy. He said, you know, you just book the trip and then everything works itself out. And I was like, I don't know about that. And he booked the trip for me. He bought me a trip to Costa Rica, an adventure trip. Amazing guy. This guy, John Landau is the greatest, great, you know, produced Avatar and Titanic, one of the biggest movie producers of all time. And he really taught me a lot with that. You book the trip and everything will work itself out. John's an amazing man. And so, um, you know, he also taught me that busy people get stuff done faster. That's also true. Yeah. And so, you know, you call someone like that biggest movie producer in the world and you think he's not going to get back to you for weeks. He gets back to you 20 minutes later. Busy people get things off their plate right away. Yeah. So he taught me a lot. And so um, after that, I ended up touring with a bunch of rock bands, like punk rock bands. What happened was um, I started helping people in sobriety get sober and... um I got really good at it for some reason. I just now, did you start first as like, like a sponsor or how did, how did well, it start? So this, this is a funny story. Uh, so you can't, you know, in 12 step, you sponsor people. I don't even know if I'm supposed to be talking about this, but I'm doing it now. So we're going forward. Da, 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 da. Yeah. So <laughs> people are going to be hating on me. So, um, so in, you know, you, you sponsor people, it's part of the steps. And so I didn't have anybody to help. And so I thought I'd do Big Brothers of America, which is an amazing, you know, thing, Big Brothers of America, you, you know, you find someone who doesn't have a mentor. And, you know, I went through the whole process. It was this amazing process. And they interview you and they check your background, they check your references, they want to make sure you're not like some freak, right? right? And so the last step was, and I was a year sober at the time, and the last step was this like, three-hour interview with this really sweet girl. I think she was like this Christian girl, really nice. <laughs> and she's interviewing me, and she starts asking me all these questions, and it starts to get really uncomfortable. But I was like, I'm going to be honest no matter what. Because if they don't want me, they don't want me. But I'm living in an honest, pure life now. So she says to me, one of the questions is, she says, do you own any um, pornography? And I went, "Um, I own like an acceptable amount of pornography. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, you know, like what, like magazines? And I'm like, no, I'm a grown up, like DVDs. This is obviously before the internet. So um, then she goes, well, do you own any toys? And I go, toys like dildos and anal beads? And she says... (laughs) No, no, like a bat or a ball. And I go, oh, my God, no. I, I thought that's You're a still weird, on this se- so weird segue. Was, yeah, it's a weird segue. I, that's a weird question Agreed. to come right after it, right? And so she's like a bat or a ball. And I'm like, I don't have a bat or a ball. But um, so anyway, so I became <laughs> a sports store on the corner. I became a big brother, which was amazing. Amazing. And I think I, I think we dated a little bit, me and the girl. Well, I think it must have been the toys that got her interested. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, And that was my first experience with helping somebody else, you know, getting out of myself. Like everything 
had always been about me up until that point. And I was really selfish and self-centered. You know, they, they say that's the root of alcoholics is selfish and self-centeredness. Interesting. Yeah. And so it's always about battling that for me. And um, so I, I, I took this kid to the Getty and we played paintball and it was amazing, you know, and I drive up to Crenshaw to go pick him up. And it was, it was really amazing. So that was my first experience with sort of giving back. And then I started sponsoring guys and helping guys and I got really good at it. And, um, there, you know, as a result of that, somebody dragged me into this thing called sober coaching, sober companion work, because I was also a trainer, right? So they thought they could get two for one. They could put me with some big rock star or some TV star, or movie star who could get a sober coach and a trainer for the price of a sober coach. Right. And they did. Um, and I also used to be a chef a million years ago, right? Oh my God, you've done it all. I, you know, Fights, cooks, everything. I started working when I was 12. So, and I worked my way up from a dishwasher to a, a sous chef in the kitchen. Amazing. So I could cook and do the diet and do the fitness and try and help people stay sober. So I got to travel the world with these like rock bands, which was crazy at the time, you know? And um, it was, it was interesting. It, it totally cured my rock star fantasy. I'll say that. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not, it's not all it's cracked up to be. Oh, I can't imagine. So you were, so then you got into more being a sober coach. Now, do you feel like, when did you kind of make the shift from training or did it always stay kind of hand in hand? It went hand in hand because a sober coach isn't really a consistent job. And so what would happen is I would be training a bunch of clients and then they'd call me and they'd be like, Hey, do you want to go work with this person? on this movie for, you know, four weeks or eight weeks or whatever, or do you want to go on tour with this band? And I'd say, sure. And my clients were all cool with it. And I disappear for eight weeks and then come back and start my training business up again. So I was able to do both for a long stretch, but I did about 15 years of training and sober coaching. What's the hardest thing about being a sober coach? What's the most frustrating? I could imagine it's a very frustrating job Yeah. as well as rewarding clearly, Yeah. but like, what's the most frustrating part of it? Um, the, I would say the most frustrating part of it is, is that some people don't want the help. You know, it's, it's hard if they want, you've got all these tools. Like I felt like I have all these tools to give. I would be sitting in someone's house in Hollywood Hills and they would be just in the room and they wouldn't even leave the room. And it, you know, I'm sitting there making a fortune, like doing nothing, doing nothing, eating cheese and crackers and like <laughs> watching Netflix all day long, sitting by an infinity pool, looking over the whole city You're a babysitter. and people would kill for that job to make a thousand dollars a day doing that. And yet I was feeling like this is so wasted. My talents, everything I have to share what I want to share with the world is just being wasted here right now. Now, talking about the window, is that hard for you then to know? Like, do you watch on the outside then when people have missed their window? Yes. And you wish you could throw them into the window, but yes. you can't, right? I mean, that's everything you, you said. You can't. So. You wanna, I want to grab a hold of them and drag them kick, kicking and screaming into it. And it breaks my heart. It literally breaks my heart because people die. You know, I've watched so many people die yeah. from this thing. And uh, you, can't, you can't make somebody get it. That's the most frustrating, frustrating thing. And you lose people because they're just not ready or they don't want to do the work. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking world. Now, is staying sober something you feel like you you grapple with literally every day? Do you no, still think about it? Or are you no. so removed from it at this point? It's your lifestyle. I feel like, it, I don't think I'm removed from it. I'm aware, you know, I still every once in a while check in with my friends and, you know, I still connect to that community, that 12-step community, because I feel like that's the basis of everything. Um, but I don't, I, I don't want to drink. There's nothing in my life right now that a drink is going to improve. You know, it's like, it can be like whack-a-mole though. It can move to other areas. It can move to ice cream. It can move right. to like <laughs> sex or, you know what I mean? Other it's areas. Yeah. yeah. And there, and, you know, if you have to continue to grow. So, 
um, you have to continue to grow spiritually or in some way. Otherwise, you, you, people just put it into something else. So talk about how, let's now move to breath work, which is okay. what you're so amazing at and clearly love doing and have affected so many people. But how did you go from, it sounds like you were in a really good place, like you were good things were happening to you. What made you even go to that next level then of breath mm. work? I wasn't in a good place. I was, we'll talk about that. Yeah. So I was actually 12 years sober. And I was really frustrated with my life. I was trying to be a screenwriter. I had pursued screenwriting for about 10 years, maybe. And I had a movie, a screenplay stolen from me and made into a movie. Oof. It was so painful. And it, literally, I watched it like go up on billboards and buses and everything. Uh. And it was my it was my script. And it, it was just one of the most excruciating things I've ever experienced. And then at the time as well, um, I was in a development deal with a big, huge production company, one of the biggest in the world. And then that whole thing fell apart. And I and I and I was just heartbroken and I had to go back to work like training people. And, you know, and I was bitter. I had helped all these people get sober and helped all these people along the way. And I watched all their dreams come true. And I watched them get like rich and famous in front of me. I felt like the Forrest Gump of helping yep. people. And um, and I was and I was bitter. And I was like, where is mine? Where is mine? And um, and I was with a, a good friend of mine that I was training, this guy, Matthew Perry, who we're both friends with, right? So yep. Matthew's cool with me telling the story. And um, it, so it's a crazy story. So Matthew and I are at the Kings game in 2012, Stanley Cup. They're oh, about yeah. to win the Stanley Cup for the first time. It's history. And there's a VIP room underneath the Staples Center. And it's a small little room, and we go to the, in this room in between periods to get away from everybody, and it's filled with every celebrity in Los Angeles. I mean, you name it, like Vince Vaughn and Will Ferrell. The whole room is packed with celebrities and me. And uh, and then in walks Tony Robbins, and I'm like, holy shit, it's Tony Robbins. And Matthew <laughs> goes, really? That's who you're excited about in here right now? Like, all these people in here, and you're excited about Tony Robbins? And I'm like, yeah, he's amazing. He's helped so many people. I've read all his stuff. And he goes, well, go tell him. I go, no, people bug the shit out of you. I don't want to be that guy to him. And he goes, no, just tell him you love what he does. And I was, I chickened out. And um, he walked by, and then and then later I was walking back through the tunnel, and he was on his phone, and he looked up at me, and I think he knew. He said, "Hey, how's it going?" And I said, "Okay, I never do this. I know everybody says that because I've seen this before, <laughs> but I actually don't. And I'm a big fan, and I love what you do." And he shook my hand, and he asked me my name, and he invited me to his seminar in the next month, and he said, "I would love it if you'd be my personal VIP guest to my seminar next month." Wow! And I was like, "Are you kidding me?" And he said, "No. Here's my secretary's information," and he gave me a, a gift, and um. I went to this seminar and I was angry at the time. I was bitter and he did a bunch of different stuff. And he did this one thing that I do in my class where he had us pull these moments in our heart, right? Pull, find a moment of gratitude, find a moment of this, find a future moment. And it just cracked my heart wide open. I get emotional just talking about it right now. That was your moment. Yeah, and, and tears just streamed down my face. And I realized that my gift was just helping people. And that's what I'm here to do. That's what I'm supposed to do on this planet is just help as many people as I can change their lives. And there was a moment in there where we did a future moment and I saw two kids. I saw a little girl and a younger boy and I never wanted kids and something shifted in there for me. And I came back from this thing and I and I, my wife was like, you look like a different person. And uh, we went walking and I was silent and I'm never silent. <laughs> She's like, who are you? What's happened to you? Like I was quiet for like a week. And then I said, I, I think I, I wanna have kids. And she's like, what the, what is going on? And so I decided I wanna have kids, you know? And I made this decision. And 
Um, right after that, a couple people said to me, they said, um, you need to go do breath work. People who didn't know each other. And I'm like, what's breath work? So I went to this place that's not there anymore. And I laid down on the floor and I did this weird breathing thing to music, which is what breath work is. And um, through your mouth. And I thought it was weird. I thought the room was weird. I was in a room full of hippies. You know, I'm from the East Coast. It was fucking painful for me. You know, you're a Boston dude who got in a lot of fights and got stabbed. Yeah. I'm in a room full of hippies talking about whatever. And even after being in 12 step, it was like, this is weird. So I had this experience. I laid down and I breathed. And all this, all the anger, all the resentment, all the sadness, everything I had felt left me. And I was filled with gratitude and love and all these beautiful things. And it felt as real to me as like I would be angry on the 405 freeway. It was undeniable. The experience was undeniable. And so I went home and my wife's like, you look like a different person. Like you, again, you look like a different person. And um, we had this beautiful, like intimate conversation, my wife and I. And then, um, you know, later that night, I, I, I made love to my wife, right? Which is not my style. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And so, um, and I said, uh, I just made a baby. And she said, shut up, you idiot. And I said, no, no, I felt the soul of the baby come through me. And she's like, that's something, and that's something I would never say. And she's like, okay. And the next day she was nauseous. And I'm like, that's the baby. And she's like, will you stop being an idiot? And I, my head was shut off and I felt the best I've ever felt in my life. My head was silent the whole day. And I just said, I got to do this like all the time. So I did it every day for a year. And how did, did you go to that? And that was the conception of my daughter. That's amazing. Yes. So you were connected. So like, now I'm telling weird stories. Now everyone's going to hear that weird story. But. No, but I, I, but I love that because again, when you're explaining the type of human you are, you're like, I'm not a hippie. I'm not this. I'm pretty right. tough. I'm an, ang I can be an angry person. Yeah. But the, your point is, but if you can crack open a little bit, spirituality will find you. Like yeah. you just, you, you, you get your hippie moments. I love it. And yeah. You know, look, there have been moments when I'm driving to teach a class where like I get into it with someone on the highway. I don't get out of the car anymore. I have kids, but I'm like, <laughs> I, I'll say in my class, like I almost kick somebody's ass on the way over here it's like i'm gonna go from kicking somebody's ass to like putting gratitude and love in people's hearts and so you know it's like it's weird you know i i don't but you're you and i always find the more you are you like if you pretended not to be that person i yes. don't think you'd be doing well in breath work well yeah there's a lot of people out there and I, this is gonna this is a bit of an asshole thing to say but i don't why stop now yeah <laughs> <laughs> i see people come in and they like I think they present this image of what they think a teacher is supposed to be, a breath work or a meditation teacher is supposed to be. And they come in and they have this voice and blah, blah, blah. and some people have an amazing silky voice that really helps you meditate. And other people, I'm like, whose voice is that? Why are you doing that voice? Like, <laughs> right, stop. it changes completely. Yeah, and, like, they're, and they're like, oh, everybody, you know, Mercury's in retrograde right now. I'm sure everybody's <laughs> going through it. I'm like, Mercury is not, it, whatever, that's not your problem. Take responsibility for your life. Oh, that's so funny saying that. You know, that. like Mercury, don't blame it on Mercury in retrograde grade your shit is messed up because you have created that and, and you like, have to learn not to blame the other things yeah and that it's okay sometimes i've shit fucked up yeah you know i can't stand when people say everything happens for a reason i'm like sometimes that reason is you that you aren't taking responsibility for your life you know i agree with that yeah so thank you so um so yeah so i started doing but you could say by doing that like you said the fear keeps coming. You keep getting stabbed and you keep getting hit until you finally make the change. Yeah, you know you what I mean? So in a weird way, it's like it's your own shit, but it's like finding you. So the things are happening for a reason until it finally like hits you hard enough. That's, that's true. Until you make the unconscious conscious 
it's going to keep repeating itself, right. right? So I had to clear all that stuff out and start to make it be aware of it and make it conscious, you know. And um, it was, you know, it was life changing. I started doing this breath work every day, uh, sometimes on my own, sometimes on classes I'd go to. And my wife is like, I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it. Because I was like a calmer, kinder, gentler soul. All the anger, everything was just gone. And it was like all this stuff was just leaving me. And it just, it just connected me to the best version of me, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. It just, it just made me become the best, strongest version of myself. And it still does to this day, you know. Um, if I start to get off the beam a little bit, you know, I'm not like, it's not like you do the work and then you're enlightened. Perfect. Yeah. Right. You've got to keep doing the work. Um, I, you know, and so if I start to get off the beam and I lay down and I breathe, it brings me right back to where I need to go. And I get there faster and easier now. And I don't wait as long to get to where I need to be, you know. And you probably feel, you, you, you know yourself better now, so you can feel it probably instantly when you're slightly heading towards anger, I'm sure. Yeah, well, I have I'm sure you can catch yourself faster. I, yeah, <laughs> I have a lot of sounding boards, you know what I mean? I have kids and a wife and students and all these people, and I can hear myself with them. And, I, and it's like, how am I being? How patient, how kind, how loving, how generous am I right now? It's interesting. I was talking about that with someone earlier, how when someone is a reflection of you, how fast you make changes. Like, it, it's different than staring at yourself in a mirror, but when you're actually, when... The, you have, like you said, you have kids and you're, you feel like they're your sounding board and they see what you're doing and students and a wife, it definitely makes you make changes faster. Yeah. Yeah. You have, you can't, I don't think I can show up as the teacher, as the husband, as the father. I, I I'm trying to lead by example, right? What example do I want to set? And so, um, everything I say, everything I do, people are watching. And so I, I want to live my life you know, even if they're not watching, I want to be the best guy that I can be, you know? Oh, that was very sweet. <laughs> How, um, so when did you start incorporating that into kind of like your sober coaching? Is that where it first started, where you first started yeah, kind I, of teaching it? Well, so I was doing it just for myself and I wasn't even telling anybody I was doing it. I was kind of embarrassed. I was going to say it was for you. I could see how that would be embarrassing. Yeah. And it, it's funny. It was, I was a little embarrassed about it. And then I was doing it every day for a year, but people noticed the change in me. And then, um, I started taking some teacher trainings and learning from people. And, um, I would sit through these teacher trainings and they were like way out there, like way hippie, you know, people sharing that they're an alien. And I'm like, look, that person just said they're an alien. No one even blinked in the room. We're not going to, we're just going to go along with that. You know <laughs> I mean? Like we're not going to even fucking acknowledge that. And so I sat through some painful shit. I feel like now I'm like, I'm the interpreter for people. Like I, I get a lot of people to my classes that are, um, sort of mainstream East coast people who are like, what happens is women come to my class and then they go, okay, my husband or my boyfriend has will to, to do this. We'll right? totally get you and like totally relate to you. Uh, so I get all these people who would never normally do breath work, um, or any kind of meditation or practice. Well, like, like you that. said, you make it mainstream and you, you, you take the preciousness out of it. I think so. I, I think I'm just trying to, to be as honest and as real as I can, you know, um, I don't want to be a guru or be put on a pedestal or anything like that. I mean, I make mistakes every day. I'm doing the best I can. And, um, you know, when you put somebody up there, when like this goes back to what we've started with, with the healer, when you put them up as a healer, as a guru, and you put them above everyone else, it's like they it's too much pressure or there's too much power and they start abusing that power. Well, that's what I was going to ask you when you mentioned it. It's, it is interesting. I mean, even in this world of spirituality and wellness, it, it, there is a God complex that can happen. Yeah. And so I've seen some massive egos out there. I, you know, I kind of feel like 
my job is just to be a guide. And what I mean by that is I'm like, we're hiking on a trail and the trail is life. And I'm like 25 feet ahead of you. And I'm like, no, no, look out for that rock. Look out for that briar bush. No, look out. There's a rattlesnake there. No, no, that's not the love of your life. It's a rattlesnake. No, no, don't get the rattlesnake's name tattooed on your neck. <laughs> nope. Don't have a baby with the rattlesnake. You don't even know the rattlesnake. Okay. Now you've done it. So like, in, and so I'm just trying to be the best guide that I can. And, um, you know, it's up to people if they're going to make those choices or not. Absolutely. Do you feel that, I mean, so like back to what we were saying before, that's probably the most frustrating part is watching people make choices that you know are probably not the best for them, but they have to do it. Yeah, it's painful. Some people will really take the direction and take the advice and, and I'll watch their life just blossom in front of me. And other people will just keep making the mistakes and I'll watch them make the mistakes. And the hardest part for me is to love them no matter what. That's a huge lesson. Yeah. So how do you, through breath work, and you should talk a little bit more about kind of what that is for people who have never done it before. Sure. Um, do you feel like you see a shift immediately with people yes. when you're teaching this? So breath work, the, the amazing thing about breath work as opposed to other things. So like I've done other stuff, like I tried to drive down to the Buddhist center in Long Beach years ago when there was no meditation studios out there and sit there with this guy who was like the Dalai Lama of, you know, California. And it was painful. Like I'd sit on the pillow and I'd be like, oh my God, my back hurts. Oh my God, how long is this going to go for? Oh my God, my back hurts. Oh my God. That was like my first mantra. Like right. my back hurts. Oh my hurts. God, my back hurts. <laughs> yeah. So um, I tried it all. I tried all the different stuff and it was just hard for me or it didn't work for me. It made me feel like a failure at something else. And then I, I went in and I did breath work and basically breath work, it sounds really simple, but you lay on the floor and, you know, someone shows you how the technique, which is, you know, there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. The way I do it is um, a breath into the mouth. It's all done in and out through the mouth, the active portion into the belly, right? Most of us aren't breathing in our belly. Most of us are breathing really shallow in our upper chest. Um, and when we don't or we're holding our breath. You know, you have a pattern. I hold my breath all the time. Yeah, you have a pattern when you get angry. You have a pattern for depression of breathing. So if we can understand and recognize our patterns and break out of them, we can start to change our moods. But, um, you know, you're holding your breath because you don't want to feel something. You don't want to say something. So it, you're supposed to be breathing through your nose. The best way to breathe is in through your nose, down into your belly, right? And you take a couple breaths like that in through your nose and down through and into your belly, it will start to shift your mood and you'll start to relax a little bit. This breath work thing is something different. It's special. You breathe through your mouth. And I think this is the only time you really should be breathing through your mouth unless you're exercising like really hard. Um, and so you breathe through your mouth. You take a big breath into your belly and then another one into your chest. So two breaths in and then one breath out. And it sounds really simple. Like how is this going to change hard, your though. life? It's hard though. It's intense. Yeah, it's intense. It's in a good way, though. And it's, it's a little bit of work, right? It's, it's a lot of work. Yeah, but you're I, definitely working for it. Yeah, it's but, a little bit like a workout, but you're laying on the floor. Like you've done something and tougher the music in your is life amazing. than laying, laying on the floor and breathing. And you, you do a great like soundtrack that I feel like is really helpful. Like, like yeah, I put some, I put some motivating music in there and I shout over the music, Tony Robbins style. That's great. I, I think that's what makes me different from some breathwork teachers. Like the former trainer in me is pushing people, you know, because we need to be pushed. You know, we're just not going to show up and work that hard for ourselves. We need somebody to help us. Like push. you said, who? how do you step into the unknown? Sometimes you need to be pushed. You're never going to like, you know, even if you're a personal trainer, even if you love working out, you're never going to push you yourself as hard as somebody else can push you. For sure. And so that's the same in breath work. So I push people harder than they would push themselves. And I get them to breathe in this way. And what happens is you have an experience from it. And the experience is undeniable. This is the thing I love about breath work. You can go to Reiki or some other meditations and you walk out and you'd be like, yeah, maybe I, I think I feel something. I don't know. You go to breath work and you're like, 
what the fuck just happened? I can't tell Your you. Your whole body's like tingling. Yeah, and shit. people, yeah. you know, some it freaks some people out their first time. It's an intense experience, but I cannot tell you how many people have come up to me after their first class and be like, I feel like I just did a year of therapy in, the, in that in that session without saying anything or that was the most profound experience I've ever had in my life. People have these huge, massive experiences in their, in their first class. The well, first I remember time. when I did my first class with you, it was what came up for me. Mm-hmm. And I knew I was just so stressed and exhausted. I was like, Oh, this will be great. And like, I need, I'm, I'm like wound so tight right now, no matter what, this is going to be good for me. And like really like old stuff came up, which was like stuff that I thought I'd forgiven myself for. And I clearly had, and I got so sad in a good way. Like it was opening up a door of sadness that I'd closed off clearly and hadn't like tapped into. I'm so glad you said that. So here's the thing. We all have stuff. We all have stuff like that that we push down inside of us. Some of us don't even remember. We don't even know why it's there. Maybe some jerk pushed you off the monkey bars when you're on the playground with your kid. Right. Maybe it's not your stuff. Maybe it's your parents' stuff. Maybe your parents or their parents were Holocaust survivors, and it gets passed down through the DNA. There's scientific evidence to that now that stuff is passed down through DNA. So I'm not making that up like some hippie shit in the circle that I heard. <laughs> That's real scientific. What they've about done, the aliens? They've done studies. <laughs> I don't know. They, they might show up, but they've, they've done scientific, you know, studies with mice and with worms where they do stuff to them. And then 14 generations later, it's still showing up. So we have stuff passed down to us. But, you know, look, we don't even have to look at that. We all have stuff that's happened to us in our lives. Absolutely. That, and so we think we've dealt with it. And then we do this breathing thing and it clears it out. And what you don't realize is that it's unconsciously affecting your relationships and your friendships and how you act out in the world. Most people are going through life with the brakes on, never reaching their full potential because of past experiences. They're unconsciously reacting because of past experiences. And it's even people who are moving forward and are successful. They're, they're still, you're right. It, you can be successful. There's and still stuff have that a, you're closed off to because you don't even realize it's still holding you back. Yeah. And some of the most successful people I've ever met to have all this stuff pushed down inside of them. They're just like, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm going to focus on this. But the, but the truth is, is that's the stuff that gets us sick. That's the stuff that yeah. causes health problems, cancer and heart conditions and all this different stuff. So it's, it's really important to clear it out. And if you don't understand why you keep repeating the same pattern, like I say this all the time in my class, like if you're sick and tired of having the same relationship with a different face, like let's change it. And that's on you. Yeah. What's the norm here? You are. Yeah. So you're you the common denominator yeah. in all your problems and all your failed relationships. You're the common denominator. So, so like, let's fix it. Yes. And so this thing changes. Like I've never seen anything causes, create as much like amazing positive change as breath work. I've, I've experienced it myself in my own life. And then I've watched other people come in and do it and see their whole life change. I see people change in front of me. They come, they're a mess. And the more resistant you are, you don't have to believe in it. You just have to show up and do it. Yeah. I see these guys who are like, smart feet. I see these guys who show up like their wife's dragged them there. They're like looking at me like, oh, this bald bastard. Why am I here? And and I'm like, that guy's going to have a huge experience. And they crack open and they come up to me afterwards and they're like, thank you so much. I can't believe all this stuff that just came up. And, it, and you know, we just clear it out. And every time you do it, this is what's amazing about it. Every time you do it, it's a little different. And the reason that is, is because you're transforming. It's starting to change you. It's clearing out all the stuff. Now, I had a lot of stuff. So it took me a couple months to clear it all out. I see other people, they do one session, they're great. They're floating out. Yeah, and you don't need me every time. You can do it on your own. But like I said, you know, it's it's better if somebody pushes you. No, but I, so many things. Like you, you don't need a trainer. You could work out on your own. You could do sit-ups and push-ups every morning and go for a three-mile run. But a lot of people need help motivating. Sure. And same thing with yoga. You could do asanas at home too, but sometimes it's great to be in a class and have a teacher tell you what to do. 100%. And it's why I opened up Dead Meditation. It's like... It's easier sometimes to sit down and have someone lead you through a practice and and carve out the time that way than do it in your house when you have kids screaming or a to-do list. 
Yeah, I mean, look, that the, the den is amazing for that. Like when I tried to meditate on my own years ago, there was no there was no one leading the meditation. There was no one giving me cues or telling me what to do or any of this stuff. And so it just made me feel like a failure. Your back hurt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's it. So you can go to the den and take these classes, which is amazing. And I started something now, which is uh, if people can't go to the den, I'm doing breathwork online. That's great. So I do two live classes a week. And people are resistant, which is funny. They're resistant. They're like, I don't know if I want to do it live. And like, so they get on and I'm like, just turn your camera off so I don't see you. And they lay down and they breathe. And it's like I'm in their head because you put on the headphones. Yeah, it's great. It's like, yeah, it's exactly right. And it works amazing. People are saying it's like a private session in your house. Yeah. And what's cool about it for some people is they can kind of let go a little more. They feel a little safer. Because they're alone. Yeah, they're in their safe space. Everybody likes to do it differently. Yeah, they don't have to drive afterwards. You know, you want to lay there after the breath work. Right. But I always tell people, if you can, if you're around, go to a live class first. Go to an in-person class first to have the experience and and do that, you know. So when you're talking, I mean, it's so interesting because you've now worked with people for so many different angles, like, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it be physically training them or getting them through their sobriety and then this breath work. If you could give a piece of advice when someone's just that first moment, when someone's just feeling shitty, whether it be something big like a death of a friend or family member or something like a breakup or whatever it is, you just know, what would your first piece of advice be for them to start getting a handle of it or for them to not miss their window of change? Uh, My first piece of advice would be to don't be afraid to ask for help. You know, people get so caught up in like, I can handle this and trying to just do it all on their own. It's like, why? You know, I I don't understand. It's the same thing with like, people will come up to me after my classes and say like, oh my God, that's the first time I've cried in five years. I'm like, why haven't you cried in five years? (laughs) What are you, a robot? Like there's no awards given out for not crying. Right. There's no trophies given out for not crying. We're supposed to cry. That's a good emotion. We're supposed to emote that stuff. So don't, you know, ask for help. Allow yourself to cry. Like allow, have the courage to ask for help. Did you cry like growing up or before you kind of had your... Well, my my thing, I, I, I was really sensitive growing up. And, and my joke in my class is that like I grew up in an area where it didn't allow for sensitivity. So if you have a feeling, you push that feeling down, you do a shot and then you punch somebody in the face and that feeling goes <laughs> and that's away. That's crying. Yeah, <laughs> that feeling goes away. But the truth is, is that I was always a sensitive kid and I was told like, oh, you're too sensitive. You're too sensitive. And now I look at that and I go, well, what's too sensitive? Why are my feelings not valid? What's wrong with the way I feel? You know, and so... Um, I am really sensitive. And well, and that must have been so me. hard growing up in a place like that, too. I mean, yeah, with all tough guys. It's brutal. Yeah. It's brutal. <laughs> and, then, and then it must have been really hard for you in trying to make the shift, too, because if you've put down, if you are that sensitive and you've put all that emotion down, that's a lot of shit that has to come up. Yeah, and that's why my hair fell out. I mean, that's the thing. Is it, is it interrelated? They, they say they're not sure what causes alopecia, but they think it's stress. It's usually stress or some big trauma. But it's right? not reversible, right? Once Sometimes it is. Oh, interesting. Yeah, sometimes it is. Um, so they think it's... And I joke about that all the time. I'm like, if you don't think your emotions can affect your health, then go find my eyebrows because they're gone. <laughs> so, and, that's brought, and that's brought on by emotion, right? So like if, you're, if your emotion, if you're pushing all this stress and all this emotion down inside of you, it's going to get you sick. People get cancer. We know that that cancer is caused by stress, right? We know that heart disease is caused by stress. There's no question about it. Science has proven this stuff now. So... Um, how, what do you want to do with your life? Do you want to get rid of that stuff? Do you want to clear it out? And so, I, you know, I think it's really important that you find a way to do that. There's, there's not really any doubt about it anymore. You know? So when in this amazing saga of your life that I love, did you meet your wife? <laughs> what, who, which, which John Paul were you? Okay. So, um, not that you're not the same version of yourself, but no, you know so, what I mean? No, look, I was John Paul 
who at the time, my best solution was I was helping as many people as I could. And I, I helped this guy. Uh, I was helping this guy. This is a good story. I was helping this guy that couldn't get sober for like 12 years. And I watched him for my first five years of sobriety, you know, just keep relapsing and relapsing and relapsing. It was painful. I mean, I thought this guy was going to die. And he asked me for help. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I got to help this guy. And don't like, put it on me. It's nerve wracking. Yeah, like, yeah, like I can't help this guy. And so I worked with them and I do what we do. And I was helping him, you know, through the steps as we do. And um, one of the nights he was like, you know, he tried to he tried to quit me at one point. I was like, no, no, you don't get to quit and then go back out and use and do drugs again. I mean, when he asked me to help him, he had fallen off his bike. He was scoring crack and he didn't want to put his hands down and drop the crack rock. So he like broke all his front teeth out. Oh. So he was like his teeth were broken. I mean, he was a mess. Right. And so he tried to quit me. I said, no, we're going to keep doing this. You committed to doing this. And he got 30 days. He got 60 days. He got 90 days. He got six months. He got a year and it changed my life. And I watched it was like I, I had never been a part of something like that. It was a miracle. It was like it was the first real life miracle that I'd ever witnessed. And you were part of. And I was a part of it. And somewhere in the process of helping this guy, he um, he said, can you come to my house tonight and help me through the steps at my house? And I was like, in my head, I was like, I'm your fucking sponsor. You come to me. right? <laughs> but, so, but I said, yeah, I'll help you. And uh, I'll go to your house. And so I went to his house. And on the way out, we were walking out of the door. He's walking me out. Um, his neighbor came in with um, with her with a friend, and he introduced me to the neighbor and the friend. And I we were walking to the car, and I was like, "The friend's really hot." And he's like, "You know, he called me 20 minutes later with her number, like a good sponsee should." <laughs> I and, love it. And um, and that's my wife. That's how I met my wife. And I share that story, and people are like, "Oh," and I'm like, "Look, the moral of the story isn't like." you know, help somebody and you're going to get this hot wife, you know? Um, and everybody's shocked that my wife is so hot. They're like, Oh, your wife's really hot. I'm like, look, I lost my eyebrows. I didn't lose my game. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, so the moral of the story is like, get out of yourself, you know, and help somebody else. And let's see what is put in front of you. Like, because when I do what I want to do, it just sit home and watch Netflix and eat ice cream. Like nothing is going to come into my life. I have to get out of myself. I have to move out of my comfort zone in order for my life to change. Everything I want is on the other side of my comfort zone, right? For sure, mine too. And it's and it does take work and people don't realize that. Like you actually have to work for it. So your wife came when you were already helping people. So she, you were sober. So she missed kind of that roller coaster. Yes. But she, but it was pre-breath work. Yes. So she caught you. So you were clearly angry still and stuff because she caught you in that. Yes. Being disappointed phase too. Yes. I wasn't angry. I wasn't totally angry at that point yet because I had a bunch of things going on. I had things happening. So I was in a good phase. I was helping a lot of people and I had things happening. It was a potential for a lot of deals working. Right. And we met and we dated a little bit. And then she said, I think I'm going to move back to Vancouver. And I was like, huh. She's like, I don't know if you want to keep dating or not. I'm like, keep going to the movies and hooking up. Yeah, of course I want to keep doing that. Why wouldn't I want to keep doing that till you leave, right? So, so she was about to leave, and I said, Hey, I think there's something here. I think you should stay. And she said, No, no, I don't feel it. And she left. <laughs> she, left. she left. She left. And uh, I was like, Ouch. Okay, you know. And so, um, I, you know, she went back to Vancouver, and I proceeded to date a bunch of hot, crazy women. And then, um, and we kept in touch, and we stayed friends. And then eventually, she decided to move back to Los Angeles, and we started dating again. And the timing was just off. She wasn't over a past relationship. I needed to date more hot, crazy women. And so, uh, you know, timing is a big part of this whole thing. And so we started dating again, and we dated and went out for like a year, and we never had a, f a fight. I don't think in that whole year. And oh, I was wow. like, yeah, I was like, I think I could 
really be with this person, you know, like it was the first person. I almost missed it because um, there was no drama there. You know, I was so I was so used to the drama that it was like we would like set a date, we'd go out to dinner, we'd have have fun, great time, but we'd have you know, and then it would be like, okay, good to see you, and it was there was no drama, there was no like hot sex and then like crazy drama fighting, and it makes you feel like that's not what it's right. You're like it's the wrong thing. Yeah, it's not. There's nothing. So how did you not miss it? Um. I think I I was ready to to recognize that like what I had done up to that point was not working. You know, I always tell people it's it's hilarious to me now. People come to me for relationship advice. I do a lot of coaching besides the breath work, right? And so there's a lot of people that come to me for relationship advice. And my it's funny because my my saying about relationships was it's not love until somebody files a restraining order. <laughs> but but uh, you know, and because I had this girlfriend that like literally. Um, punch me in the face while I was driving the car. Oh my God. And my buddy's like, you're going to get back together with that girl. I'm like, she's 110 pounds. How hard can she hit? <laughs> you know? And so I, I talked about, fight was about, I talk about this in like the relationship workshops that I do at the den, people crack up. And so, um, and it's crazy what we'll put up with, right? It's crazy what we allow. Like we allow what we think we're worth, you know, and that's really this breathwork thing in all this work is about self-love. We allow people to treat us how we treat ourselves. And so if you're going to allow someone to treat you that way, then that this, that's a lack of love for yourself. Right. And so this work is all about self-love. It's all about self-care and taking care of yourself. And you hear that all the time, like, oh, you need better self-care. You need you need more self-love. And like, okay, great. I need more how? self-love. How do I do that? Yeah. And how you do that is you come and you lay down and you breathe and you clear out this stuff and you show up for yourself. That's how you love yourself. But it's nice that's like real tools because that is a problem. I think you're right. Everyone comes back with these notions of like, believe in yourself, put yeah, out the right intention. Blah, blah. But it's like, how, 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 why, there's how? There's so many great sayings out there. But people think that you're just going to turn inward and there's going to be this spark of love and joy for yourself inside yourself and that's just not the human experience it's not there you have to do the work and it feels silly at first it feels also there's layers you have to get through before you see that loving spark it's uncomfortable it's it's not easy you know but if you actually show up and you actually do the work on yourself then there is this version of your life where you really do love yourself it's beautiful Gotta see how sensitive you are. Sensitive, I, I, know, I love so it. Sensitive. See, I can't. But it's talk so sweet. About this but stuff. at least now you you're you can express it because yeah, that touches it. people. It's so I'm, great. I'm fine with it. Like I don't care if I cry in a room full of five hundred. I'm a people. crier too. I don't care. I don't care what people think about me. I know who I am today. I know I'm a good person. And so it's taken me so long to get here and be comfortable with myself and not give a shit what people think about me. Isn't it? And so, so I'm not going to back off from it now. Isn't I've it done the, the best work. feeling knowing who you are? It's like, it's, 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 you try and explain that to people, like as flawed as you can be, just accepting that is relief. Yes. I mean, look, I, I love, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu four times a week. And so I love to get a hold of somebody and choke the living shit out until they, <laughs> until they pass out or until they but tap. that's part of who you are too. And then I love to go to teach a class and show somebody how to put gratitude and love in their heart. I have both sides. And that's okay. And you and can. I've, and I've embraced that. But that's why you are a great teacher, because I think I think that's what's confusing for people in this world of, of self-improvement and self-love is I think everyone thinks it has to look a certain way or yeah. feel a certain way. Yeah. And I, that's where you get sidetracked and like 100%. you don't kind of people don't stay let people see the flaws. They don't want them to see the ugly side. The flaws are what make us interesting. Otherwise, we're all the same person and boring. That's right. That's right. People admire the great people like the Oprah Winfrey's and the Michael Jordan's and the Muhammad Ali's, the people that stand out. But then everyone tries to fit in. 
Like, why do you, why, why do you try to fit in when you're admiring all these people that stand out? Or then they just try and copy them because they paved the new path versus right. what's my path? Who am right. I? Who am I? What, what, like, yeah, what trail can I blaze? Right. What makes me unique? You know, what makes me unique is that, you know, you know, I don't, I, I say the truth. I don't give a shit what people think about me. Sometimes I say really stupid, embarrassing things. You know, I, I don't care. You know, I'm not the greatest guy in the world, but I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to get a little better every Pretty day. Pretty great. Oh, thank You've you. done amazing things for people and for yourself and for your family. And you do amazing things for people every single day. That's huge. Like, and again, I think the fact that you have more reality to you of like who you are actually is even better and more helpful for people. I had, thank you. I had to switch my definition of what success was. Because what happened to me was, is I saw all these people, all these people I had helped get really successful. I saw people like their careers blew up and got huge and all this kind of stuff. And then my friend said to me, what if your definition of success is all the people that you've helped? Absolutely. And I went, oh my God. And that was like your Tony Robbins moment. Yeah. Like I'm successful because of all the people I helped. Absolutely. You know, that's my de definition And look, of and you've worked with enough people like that where you know sometimes that quote unquote success actually sometimes breeds unhappiness or doesn't at least mask the unhappiness. Oh, I've should seen say. it. I've seen it a hundred percent. You know, I have a lot of the outside stuff that people would deem successful. You know, I have a very happy marriage and two businesses and two children and a house and all this kind of stuff. So all those outside measures, sure, I'm successful at now, but that's not what's important. What's important is that I'm fulfilled because, you know, people are chasing this happiness illusion, right? And happiness comes and happiness goes, but fulfillment is what's really important. Fulfillment is what you want to go after. Fulfillment is what you want to seek. And I'm filled up by helping other people. And so as long as I keep on that, I'm, I'm on the right track. But that's such an interesting point. I think a really good point to make for them because, it, the fact that you just said happiness comes and happiness goes, but fulfillment stays. It, I always say that to you. You have ups and you have downs. Nobody escapes that. There's right. not a person in the universe who escapes a down or an up. It's, it is how how you feel about yourself every day. So the fulfillment that actually helps you ride the downs and ha helps you actually be really excited about the ups and like take advantage of them. So stop believing that you're supposed to be happy all the time. Right. Nobody is. That's a lie. Yeah. You know, and that, and, and that lie is what makes you unhappy is thinking, Oh, I'm not happy right now. There's something wrong, wrong with me. me. Yeah. And that's not true. You know, I had a, I had a moment when I, I went through a breakup at like three years of sobriety, it was really painful. I love this woman. We lived together and it was so painful. And I was sober. It was my first real relationship. And, you know, she was moved. this your first sober breakup. Yes. First sober yeah, breakup. We lived together for almost three years. She moved out. It was so painful. And I had never felt that kind of pain sober. And I reached out to a friend and he suggested this book by Pema Chodron, which is called When Things Fall Apart. Amazing book. Amazing, right? And then he said to me, what are you feeling? And I said, I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling heartbroken. And he said, just go sit and feel that. So I sat on the pillow and I just said, felt lonely and sad. And I just allowed it because my whole life, I didn't want to feel those feelings. I didn't want to allow it. That's why I drank. That's why I did drugs. It's because I didn't want to feel any of that stuff. And so I just allowed it. And it, what happened was it came out and it came through me and I felt sad and I felt lonely for like, I don't know, 25 minutes. And then I was like, okay, I, I, I guess I'll go make a sandwich now. <laughs> what do I do now? You know what I mean? Like it just went through me. But the problem is, is we don't want to feel those feelings and we don't let them pass through us. So we, we do things like drink or use or eat or whatever to not feel them. And then they get stuck and they never get processed. And, and breathwork taps into that. Breathwork does that, you know? And so it's a really, it's a really beautiful thing when now, when something comes up for me, you know, um, my dog passed away 
and it was it, I had to be the guy and handle everything, and it was so painful. And then I was I was not dealing with it, like I wasn't feeling it. I wasn't because I had to be the man for my kid. My daughter was upset, and my wife and everyone. And then you know put him to sleep, and it was it was painful. And then I finally got to lay down and breathe, and I literally I think I took five breaths, and I felt it, and I allowed it, and I processed that grief, you know, and that sadness, and it just it just came out of me, and then I was good. You know, it wasn't like I stuffed it down and didn't deal with it. And then it's coming out sideways in Starbucks when the asshole in front of you doesn't know what he wants to order. And he's screaming he's, at him. Yeah, he's screaming at him. He's like, dude, it's you've been in line for 25 minutes. You don't know what you want. Starbucks is the same all over the world. Come on. So, <laughs> so you know, it comes out sideways if you don't deal with it. That's incredible. Um, this has all been amazing. And, and I mean, I hope people are listening to this because I think there's some incredible advice on how to just like yourself more, like at the most simple thing. I mean, I think it's all great. You should absolutely come and try John Paul's breath work or do his live seminars that he's doing now. But first, I want to hit you with some five quick questions. Oh, boy. No, just easy ones. Is this like James Lipton, the actor's studio? No, 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 no. These are more <laughs> These are more just like resources that people can turn towards, which okay. you actually you mentioned a few already. So okay, good. what is your daily practice now? My daily practice is um, I get out of bed and I don't do this every day. I try to do it every day, but I'm not perfect. I try to get out of bed and um, go into my studio and, and breathe for at least 10 minutes, you know, sometimes longer if I can. But breathe for 10 minutes into my belly and really connect to my breath and, and then find gratitude. What am I grateful for? You know, it's hard to be angry and frustrated and grateful at the same time. So I try to get into the things that I'm grateful for in my life. Um, and then that's the, that's the, the first thing I do. That's great. Um, is there a spiritual book or a teacher that you would recommend? Um, a spiritual book, one that I love, is called um, The Untethered Soul, The Journey Beyond Self by Michael Singer. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing book. It's one of the only books that I've ever read and then immediately started it over and read it again. And so um, I love that book. So I recommend that. Teachers, there's a lot of great teachers out there. But my thing about teachers is don't get caught up in one teacher. You know, people get stuck under this teacher and they get like trapped. And I think that that's a mistake. I think there's a lot of people to learn from. And if I think if you get stuck under one teacher in one way, you're really limiting yourself. Right. It's true. Yeah, you're right. Um, is there something I mean, this is a loaded question for you. Is there something you wish you knew before you started kind of the spiritual journey for yourself? I just wish. Um, I started it earlier. You know, the first time I did breath work, I went, holy shit, like, this is amazing. This has been here in, inside of me, available to me my whole life. Why didn't somebody show me this when I was 13? It could have saved me so much pain and agony and everyone around me so much pain and agony too. You know, like, I just wish I found it sooner. Hey, this is now John Paul's personal practice where he's going to share an exercise and conscious breathing for relaxation. If you just take a moment and you just become aware of your breathing, like, what are you doing? You know, are, is it, are you tensing? Are you not fully breathing? Which most of us aren't. So you can close your eyes and just take a, a deep breath in through your nose and put your hand on your belly. And I like to press against my belly and move my hand. So 
there's one of these things that I sort of discovered as a trainer. It's like when you put resistance against a muscle, the muscle activates and becomes aware. So in my classes, I'll sometimes go ahead and press on people's bellies because they don't know how to breathe into their belly their whole life. Like, you know, a lot of people have been holding their abs for 40 years, like holding their bellies in. And that's just not good for us. So if you put your hand on your belly and sort of press against it a little bit to feel the resistance and then inhale in through your nose and feel your belly expand. And you can exhale out through your mouth and make a sound, like literally make a sound. So let's do that again. Put our hand on our belly, in through our nose. And just go, ah, ah. Just let out any kind of sound. Just the sound of relief, the sound of relaxation, the, so the sound of letting go. Ah. And sometimes... When I'm stressed out or when I'm having a hard day or when I don't know what the right thing is to do or when I want to get angry, I want to react, I'll just literally take a breath. I mean, there's a saying like stop and take a breath. And these sayings exist for a reason. But the thing is, is that we've heard them so much that we don't we don't really hear them anymore. You know, you stop hearing them. You stop seeing certain things and you see it all the time. So if you learn, I've learned or I've relearned to literally stop and take a breath. And when I want to like send a reactive email to somebody, right? Or when I want to snap back at my wife because I don't like something she just said because it, it, you know, it, it bothered me in some way because I'm in charge of my own feelings, right? So, um, yeah, we're in charge of ourselves. Nobody can make you feel anything. You're going to allow them to make you feel that way. So if I, if I decide that I'm going to take responsibility for my feelings in my life, you know, for me, the most important tool that I've learned over the years is pause, pause when agitated, right? Pause when somebody says something that bothers you. Pause when you read an email that you can't believe they just said that and you want to email back. If I can pause and take a couple deep breaths in through my nose and out through my mouth or in and out through my nose, and this is not breath work, breath work is all through the mouth, but this breathing through the nose into your belly can change it a lot. The pause will change your life. If you can pick up this tool, everything's a hack now. This life hack of the pause will literally change your life if you can start to learn to pause. But if you're reacting to everything out there in the world, what's going on inside of you that's making you react? So that's what you want to look at. That's what you want to clear. And my suggestion is for you is that you come into the den and we do a breathwork class and we clear that stuff out. So thanks. Mm -hmm.